God, we thank you for who you are, that you are the almighty, all-knowing, transcendent God of the universe. And we get to commune with you, we get to speak with you, and we get to spend time in your word, and we pray that you would open up our eyes to your truth, that we would see new things in the text, we would understand new things about you this morning, that we would just be drawn closer to you, that we would be more like you after spending time in your word. God, we pray for uh, people in this community who don't know you, people in this community who are lost and hurt and dying and broken, who are in need of salvation, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would use us to do so, you would place a a burden on our heart for them, that we would have a, a passion for people who don't know you, people who are estranged from you and in need of salvation, that we would be bold to speak out for your namesake. God, we pray that um, that your name would be high and lifted up in our hearts and in this place. Amen. All right, well, let's start with a little bit of review from last week. Last week, we started off in chapter 7 of Mark and looked at the first 23 verses or so. So let's turn to Mark chapter 7, and we'll look at that together. But as you draw your minds back to last week and some of the stuff that we looked at last week um, in chapter 7, what was the, the issue that the Pharisees and the scribes found with Jesus and his disciples? What was the, the big problem that they had with them? That they weren't following the law. Uh, close. They weren't washing their hands. They weren't following their law, right? The, the Pharisees' law. So they were absolutely following the, the law of Moses, the, the law of God. But the Pharisees, the scribes, they had these additional laws, these man-made laws, uh, which included, as Andy said, washing their hands. That was their, their big issue. Why, why do you and your disciples not wash your hands before eating? That was their problem. And why were they at fault for calling out Jesus on this issue, on this point? What was wrong with them making a big deal about this? I guess I kind of already addressed it in, in part that it was a tradition, right? So it wasn't the, the law of God that they were breaking, but it was just their, their mere man-made tradition that Jesus wasn't keeping. And so there was no reason for the Pharisees to be calling Jesus out on something that he wasn't bound to. He wasn't bound to this law. So if you look at verse 8 of Mark 7, it says that they were neglecting the commandment of God and yet you hold on to the tradition of men. And so that was kind of the, the whole issue between the, that we looked at last week, that the Pharisees wanted to hold on to their man-made traditions while ignoring the very clearly laid out uh, commands of God. They focused more on the, the Mishnah rather than the Torah, on the, the extra biblical writings, the Jewish writings, rather than what God had handed out to them. Uh, through Moses and the prophets. And then lastly, how did uh, Jesus respond to the external issue of washing the hands? What was his response to these Pharisees and these scribes? He told them that they reject the law of God while clinging to their traditions. That's what we just said 
Yeah. And then after that, he used that as a, an opportunity to launch into a, a different issue or a, a deeper issue, I guess. And what was the issue that he addresses in verses 14 through 23? Some of their traditions or laws that they created were actually designed to get around or subvert God's law. Mm -hmm. In verses 14 through, what is it, 23, he addresses um, the reason that they do that. It's because of their heart. So first he addresses the, the heart of the issue. That is that they are uh, holding to these traditions rather than the law. And then he addresses the, the issue of the heart. The reason that they're doing this is because they have this sin that is within them. They don't have to be taught how to sin. They don't have to learn how to uh, do these things. It is natural to them. Uh, it's out of the, the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And they have these crooked, wicked, depraved hearts. And that's what Jesus spent the, the latter part of that section addressing with them. Their, their internal issue. And then there's the little extra added comment that in verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. Um, so that's kind of what he was getting at. That these external things aren't the issue. The issue really is internal to us that so we're by nature, children of wrath, even as a rest. All right, well, let's jump into our section today. We're going to start off in verses in verse 24 and see if we can make it through the end of the chapter. Could I get somebody to read verse 24 through 26 for us, please? Who's got Mark 7, 24 through 26? All right, go ahead, Christina. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syro-Phoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. All right, good job. And good job with the pronunciation, too. Logan said before, Syrophoenician, he got it right the first time too, but he said, what does that mean? So we're going to learn about what that means and who this woman is, this woman from Syrophoenicia, this region of Syrophoenicia. So it starts off in verse 24 and it says, Jesus got up and went away from there. So we have to kind of go back a little bit and there is most likely uh, Capernaum on the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So up here is where Capernaum's at. So that's where he was at initially. And he was headed towards Tyre, it says. He got up from there and went to the region of Tyre. Now Tyre is up here in Syrophoenicia. This is the area that we were talking about. Um, just Phoenicia is what it was called before. And Syria came in and annexed Phoenicia. So it became known as Syrophoenicia. And so Tyre is up here somewhere in this Syrophoenician area and this area is a, a Canaanite area we can look at the parallel passage to Mark 7 over in Matthew 15 what he wrote about the same uh, whole situation with the Syrophoenician woman and it says in Matthew 15 21 and 22 that Jesus went away from there and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon so both cities Tyre and Sidon and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out. So this area of Tyre and Sidon in Syrophoenicia is a Canaanite area. And 
thinking back to our study through Joshua not too long ago, uh, what do we remember about the Canaanite people? What did God call Israel to do in Joshua with the Canaanite people? Were they supposed to be cast out and they tricked them and said, we came from a long way? That's the Gibeonites in chapter 9. But yeah, kind of zooming out a little bit, uh, going into the land. That's what God had called them to do, to go in and possess this land, which was uh, currently inhabited by the Canaanites. And he said, drive out the Canaanites. You need to get rid of them. This is your land that I had promised to you. And how did they do at that? Not so good. They did okay, but they didn't finish a job, right? They didn't completely drive them out. They drove them out enough to make themselves comfortable and get enough land and settle down, but they didn't completely finish a job as God had called them to. They conquered them, but they didn't eliminate. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Conquered them, but didn't eliminate them. Um, looking over in Judges, so we know that it was Moses who led them out of Egypt, right? And then Joshua kind of took over, and after that we have the, the judges who kind of started to rule the Israelite people. And so Judges, in Judges 1, verses 32 and 33, it says that Asher, it's an important name, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon. That's the city that we're looking at, that Jesus is going to right now, right? He's leaving Capernaum, going to Tyre and Sidon. Or of Aleb, or of Ashzib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rahab, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So they weren't completely driven out. And they are left here in this uh, region of Asher. Remember that Israel was divided into the, the 12 tribes, right? Well, Asher had the, the area that's up in this Phoenicia area, this now Syro-Phoenician area. That was Asher's responsibility to have driven them out. I'll show you on this next map. This map is really poor quality, but it was, oh, that's not terribly bad on there, I guess. Um, but it was labeled as uh, public use, so I went ahead and took it. So Asher is right up here in the Syrophoenician area. You can see Tyre and Sidon, those two cities that we're talking about in our text in Mark today. And uh, let me get rid of that for you so you can look at that a little bit. And we can see that down there towards the bottom is the, the Sea of Galilee. But it's this area that uh, Israel had failed to drive these Canaanites out of that Jesus is now entering into. So this is a Gentile area that Jesus is entering into. I'll throw up a little bit more of a readable map there for us. So Jesus was down here, Capernaum, like I said, was up towards the, the top of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is leaving out of this area, it says in Mark seven twenty four, and he went up there to the region of Tyre. So he's traveling all the way up here to Tyre, kind of northwest of where he was at, into this now Gentile region. And Jesus is going about 40 miles out of the way, uh, to Tyre. So he's kind of getting out of the way a little bit to get to this area of Tyre in this greater region of Syrophoenicia. So hopefully that didn't bog you down too much. Geography can do that sometimes for us. Um, but 
Um, going back to the text, we saw that he went away from there to this region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. So we see that Jesus is kind of wanting to get away a little bit. This isn't the first time we've seen him wanting to retreat. Um, we saw back in, um, well, here we go, that he wants to get away from Galilee. So we saw back in chapter 6, verses 32 through 34. Remember, after uh, caring about John the Baptist and the death of John the Baptist, and after he had sent out his disciples on their, their missionary journey and they came back, he wanted to get away with them so they could do a little bit of grieving, do a little bit of recuperating and uh, kind of going over what they had done on their missionary journey. But in verse 32, it says that they went away in a boat. This is chapter 6, verse 32. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Again, seeking a little bit of a retreat. But verse 33 says, The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And then we have the whole feeding of the 5,000 uh, episode. And then even later on, as you see here, verses 53, um, this is later on, he's still trying to get away and still unable to do so. It says that when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran throughout the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick, to the place where he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countrysides, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. So Jesus keeps trying to get away, do a little bit of retreat and people find him. They find out where he's at and they bring all these people to him. It says wherever he went, whatever village or city or countryside he entered, people were just crowding around him, bringing their sick and their lame to him so that Jesus could heal him. And so now we get down to Mark 7 and, and we see, okay, well, he's trying to get away again. He's going all the way up to this Syrophoenician area, to this Gentile area, um, where he's hoping to get a little bit of time away with his disciples. But once again, at the end of verse 24, um, we, we see no one, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape their notice. So Jesus' popularity prevented him from going unnoticed. People knew who Jesus was. Again, he was uh, a local celebrity of the, the highest order. Everybody who knew who, who Jesus was, they're starting to, to understand this is not just any man. This is not just any prophet. Uh, we're getting towards the, the middle of the book. Um, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of God. But even then, uh, the disciples aren't quite getting it just yet. It's not until the end of the book, in chapter 15, that we see the, the centurion cry out as Jesus is still hanging on the cross, truly this man was the Son of God. So remember, Mark is kind of taking us on this journey where people are starting to slowly realize and understand who this Jesus is and the identity that he starts off with the, the very beginning, back in Mark 1.1, at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark is driving towards throughout his whole gospel, his whole letter is trying to show how people are coming to this realization that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Uh, if we look back just a little bit 
in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, we see these two cities of Tyre and Sidon mentioned. Mark 3, 7 says that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Again, kind of getting away with his disciples. This is another pattern we see throughout the book. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan. So all these places. And then it adds, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came. So even up in this random Gentile area in Syrophoenicia, people all the way back in chapter 3, they already were hearing about Jesus. They had known about Jesus and his miraculous works that he was doing. And we see that same thing here in verse 25, Mark 7:25, talking about this Syrophoenician woman. It says, But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. So even this woman uh, who was from Syrophoenicia had heard about Jesus and knew who Jesus was. And we see that she was in a, a completely different social class from Jesus. There's a, a pretty stark distinction between her and Christ. Uh, first of all, this is a, a woman approaching a man, which was not culturally acceptable in that time. Uh, we get a little glimpse of that in John 4 with the, the woman at the well, and just how culturally unacceptable that is. But she's not just approaching any man, right? She's approaching, as I said, Jesus, this big local celebrity. He is a rabbi. And uh, even though it's not always a, a position that's respected by the, the scribes or the Pharisees uh, or the other religious leaders, it was still an elevated office, and she was approaching Jesus in this sense. But it gets even uh, more stark, this social distinction. If we look at verse 26, it says, Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So additionally, Jesus was a Jewish man, right? A Jewish rabbi. And she, uh, a Gentile woman, was approaching him. Not just any Gentile woman, but remember a, a Canaanite woman from this region in Syrophoenicia. And so the, uh, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, and the Canaanite people, they had some history, didn't they? There was some bad blood there. And yet she still approaches him, asking him for this favor, this, this huge favor, to uh, help her daughter, to cast this demon out of her daughter. But did you notice how she approached him? How did this woman approach Christ? Yeah, she fell down before him, fell at his feet, and she, she kept asking continually, repeatedly. She wasn't just going to, to let this go. She was pretty persistent in her uh, asking of Jesus to, to aid her daughter. And in one sense, we can kind of look at this and we can see, okay, well, she obviously cared for her daughter. She had this concern, this real heartfelt concern for her daughter, and uh, perhaps she would have done anything for her daughter. And so she's, she's going wherever she can. She's asking whoever she can, doing whatever she can for her daughter because she loves her daughter. But I think it's deeper than that. Um, I think there's more than just a, a general concern here, but that she is uh, not just approaching anybody out of desperation. I think that she actually knows that Jesus is the only one who can save her, that he has this unique ability to rescue her daughter. Uh, again, we looked at Matthew 15:22, and that verse said that this Canaanite woman from that region 
came out and began crying out and saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you know the the importance of that phrase, son of David. That ties back into uh, 2 Samuel 7 and the the Davidic covenant, this promise that God had made to David and how he would always have a a king to rule on his throne, how he would have his, his house and his kingdom and his throne forever. And she is identifying Jesus as this son of David. So she seems to have an even greater insight into who Jesus is than his disciples do at this point. She's calling out to him, realizing, you are the Lord. You are the son of David. I'm coming to you for help for my daughter. Even though I'm a Canaanite woman, even though you're a Jewish rabbi, I know that you are the son of David. And she's appealing to him for help with her daughter. And while the, the narrative um, brings up the daughter, the focus really is more on the woman than on her daughter. Focuses on her, her ethnicity, on her background, and on her faith, and then on the, the ensuing dialogue. And while it recognizes the, the issue of the daughter, the need that this woman has for her daughter, and Jesus' compassion towards her, uh, her, her daughter's uh, ailment by this demon is almost kind of a, a background issue. It's almost a, a secondary detail in this story. That's not the, the primary focus of the story, but it's focused on her and her relationship with Christ. Uh, any other thoughts or questions at this point on this woman and her requests and some of the dynamics between her and Christ before we move on and look at how Jesus responds to her? Certainly, for her as a, a Gentile woman to approach a Jewish man is certainly not as uh, socially offensive as anything. And the Jewish men were extremely proud. They would mm-hmm. not, I mean, we just went through the part of washing their hands, and that section noted that especially when a Jewish man, when Jewish men came from the just the marketplace, they wanted to wash all the Gentile cooties off of them. <laughs> big, big thing, and for her to approach him took just a tremendous amount of... Yes. Of, uh, it was quite taboo. <coughs> yeah. yep. The other thing for her to know about him in the first place just points out that that culture then was a very fluid culture. It's not like America in the old days when well, my parents, for instance, lived and died within 20 miles their whole lives of where mm-hmm. our ancestors lived when they arrived in America. There wasn't, in those days, there wasn't much moving around. For me, when I was growing up, to, to go five miles was a big deal. It was something we planned for the week to go to town. And, but here, people traveling back and forth all the time like Jesus himself. I mean, it's a long walk. <laughs> we can't appreciate it. It is a long walk. Because we got to have our meal on schedule and we eat so much. And they did not do that in those days. They were, what they were doing was far more important than taking care of themselves. It's very interesting. Yes. Sorry. No, you're good. We've got two things here that 
that we kind of overlooked, but Jesus' fame was great. You told yes. us earlier that the Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem. That was two or three days' travel. Yep. They were a long ways from home mm -hmm. to be up there following him around. And here she is, even further north and east. That was a pretty big deal when, when Jesus yeah, came on the scene. So his fame was, and especially, you have to understand, everything just went by mouth. There was no newspaper, radio, anything like that. Mm -hmm. No news agencies, I mean. But so many people knew Jesus was a, a miracle worker, a healer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the main thing most of them thought. Yeah, they're there as... John mentions in John chapter 6, they're just there to get fed, most of them, right? To see some kind of miracle or something. And remember, before Jesus came on the scene, really, there was 400 years of silence. There's not much of anything going on. God hadn't spoken for 400 years in the same prophetic way that he had been speaking before. And uh, Mark starts off his gospel with John the Baptist, right? He's coming and he's preparing the way. And so God has set up the, the perfect situation for the Messiah to come on scene. Uh, take into account, in addition to that, the, the Roman roads that were being built and uh, the different cities and areas of uh, commerce that people needed to travel to. Everything was set up for people to know who this Jesus is and definitely his popularity was spreading by, by word of mouth. This wasn't just local thing, this was international thing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, he was quite famous. Um, I wanted to share with you this book, these books. Um, I know that Sam and Abby are familiar with these books. This is a Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's a great two-volume commentary on the whole Bible. Um, and Jerry's been going through these books in preparation for when he teaches. And you might look at them and think, that's, that's a lot, right? That's a lot to read. Um, those are great commentaries that I would recommend for you if you needed help going through the Bible and getting commentary. That goes through the entire Bible. Uh, just by way of comparison, here's two other books from Daryl Bach, and that just goes through Luke. So, and those, those are taller than this one, which goes through the entire Bible. But I mention that because um, I, I do appreciate these books. I think that they're helpful and I use them often. However, I find myself disagreeing with John Grasmick, who wrote the section on Mark in this particular area, and I wanted to read that for you. Um, his disagreement with the, the meaning of verse 27. I guess I should read verse 27 first. So Mark 7, 27, Jesus responds to this woman and says, And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let me read to you what John Grasmick says. He says that the children represented his disciples. Jesus was telling the woman that his first priority in, in being there was to instruct his disciples. It is not appropriate to interrupt a family meal to give the dogs food from the table. So it was not appropriate for him to interrupt his ministry to his disciples to give his service to her, a Gentile. Other interpreters understand a broader theological meaning in Jesus' words. The children, unbelieving Israel, must be fed Jesus' mission. Their bread, special privileges, including first claim on Jesus' ministry, must 
not be thrown to the dogs or the Gentiles because their time for feeding because their time for feeding had not yet come. Though this view is true theologically, it overplays Mark's point. He says that that overplays Mark's point. That's my position, the, the latter one. And he says, well, it overplays Mark's point, which is a good thing to consider the intention of Mark, the, the human author of our book. But that's just one of the, the considerations here. Uh, what other considerations do we need to make when seeking to understand the, the author's intent? We have Mark, our, our human, human author, and then who else is in, included in this uh, whole process of getting us this information? The Holy Spirit. God. Yes, God. we have the Holy Spirit and we have Jesus. So we, every text has two authors, right? The, the divine author, the Holy Spirit, as he's carrying along the human author. So the Holy Spirit is carrying along Mark as Mark is writing down likely Peter's account of what Jesus was teaching, right? So this is kind of interesting. We have four different uh, authors kind of in view or at play in this text that Peter was seeing what Jesus was saying and then he relayed that to Mark who was being carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote it down. So that's kind of mind twisting, but it's cool. Um, so it's good to take into account Mark's um, understanding and what it is that he's getting at. But um, we also have other issues at play as well. Um, let me show you another book. <clears throat> this is another useful book, A Harmony of the Gospels. And what this does is it lays out uh, all four gospels in kind of parallel fashion so you can see how they compare with each other. It's kind of a, a useful tool. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at an event that was recorded in all four of the Gospels. Do you guys remember what that event was? Yes, yeah, so the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the, the few that we see in all four Gospels. So I don't know if you can see from down there, but you have Matthew's account, Mark's, Luke's, and John's, just in, in parallel fashion. And these blank spaces, you can see, okay, well, Matthew and Luke, they didn't include something there that, that Mark and John did include. So you can see why that might be useful. Well, looking at our text today, we can see that uh, Matthew and Mark are the two that record this account for us. And I want to go through and I want to read for you Matthew's account. And as I do, I want you guys to listen for any distinctions that Matthew included in his account that Mark didn't include in his account. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew 15, 22 through 26. Matthew says, Behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I need to push that for you guys. There we go. Um, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Do you guys catch any additional information that we got from Matthew's account that we didn't get from Mark's account? Jesus yeah. is bringing the gospel to Israel. Yes, good. Ethnic Israel. Yep. 
And, and Matthew points that out, whereas Mark didn't see fit to, to point that out. And so to just take Mark's explanation, um, while that's not necessarily bad, it's helpful to look at other parallel accounts, as we can see in Matthew. And so in, uh, in stating that he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew 15, 24, Jesus prioritizes his ministry to the Jewish people over the Gentile people. And that's something that we get, again, by looking at Matthew in addition to looking at Mark. So if you remember, uh, after Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, we just looked at this verse a little while ago, uh, it said that Jesus had compassion on them because they were as sheep without a shepherd. Now, back when we were actually going through that text, we looked at Jeremiah 50, verse 6, which says that my people have become like lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. That's what God said in the Old Testament as he's talking to Jeremiah. He was talking about his people, Israel, right? That they were the ones that he was sent to, that they were his lost sheep. They had been taken astray by uh, their their religious leaders, and Jesus was sent to them. We can go even farther back. We can see this in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is a very important chapter. There's a very important covenant that we see taking place in Genesis 12. And I'll read that for us in part, starting in verse 2 of Genesis 12. It says, And I will make you a great nation. Who is he speaking to there? Abraham. Abraham. Good. And what is the nation that he is referring to that he's going to make great? Israel. Israel. All right. So he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. So he has this blessing promise to national ethnic Israel. Right. But then in verse three of Genesis 12, he goes on and it says, and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So who does he broaden it out to include in that verse? Gentiles. Yeah, the, the Gentiles. All the nations of the earth, right? All the families of the earth. So he's talking about the nations. So yes, he's going to bless Israel. Yes, Israel is very special. In God's program, and God's timeline, there is absolutely a, a future for ethnic Israel. However, he broadens it out here to include all nations. And we also see that in Romans 1.16, right? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. So there is this order of priority that, that God has. He made this promise to Abraham. He's coming for the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. And I want to share this verse with you too, and I, I put this verse up on the screen because it's a, a great verse. This is a, a verse that you should know and remember. Uh, Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it is too small a thing that you, God speaking. He says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So to, to fulfill this promise to Israel, to raise them up, that's, that's too small a thing. That's, that's crazy. Uh, and then he goes on, he says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So again, we see the same concept there. Not only is God going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham, to Israel, to, to raise them up and to give them what he said, that he was going to bless them. He's going to give them a land and seed and a blessing. Uh, but in addition to that, he's going to 
uh, bless the nations, that the light is going to go forth to the nations so they may know his salvation as well, even to the ends of the earth. So we see even in the Old Testament that there are glimpses of God's uh, design and how he is going to use Gentiles even in the midst of his blessing Israel. While Israel is his focus, he's still inclusive for, toward the Gentiles. And um, maybe I should stop and pause. Any thoughts or questions at this point? That's, that's a lot, but we'll, we'll continue to dig in. Which is very All right. impressive to me how insistent she was that Matthew tells us that Mark doesn't, which is interesting because Matthew's writing to, the, to Israel, not to Gentiles. <coughs> Mark would have made more of that. Well, I think he, he includes all that he needs to include. But if... <laughs> yeah, no mistakes at all, right? Again, he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, I was just pointing out, in, in going to Matthew, we get additional information that is, is vital to our interpretation. So we could look at it as, as John Grassmick does and say, okay, well, uh, Jesus is just there with his disciples. They're having this nice family dinner, and he's telling her, well, no, I, I don't have time for you right now because I'm focusing on my disciples. I think he's saying more than that. I don't think he's just focusing on disciples. I think he's saying, I'm here for, for Israel. I came to Israel first, and you're a Gentile. So um, later, as, as uh, Paul says in Romans 1.16, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. So if, uh, if John Grasmick and his understanding, um, if he only had Mark, I think that could be a possible understanding. But we have Matthew 2, so we have to take that into account. And... I understand him as saying more than just, I'm focusing on disciples, not on you right now. What's that? The Jews considered the Gentiles dogs. And it was mm -hmm. commonly known, even the Gentiles knew that the Jews treated them and talked to them. Yep. And it's interesting, there are actually a couple of different Greek words for dog, and um, Jesus uses the more domesticated word. So he doesn't say, like, you're the, the scrangy, um, like uh, flea-infested dog who's out there, you know, scavenging for, for food. He says, no, you're more like a, a family uh, puppy-type dog. I don't know how much importance you want to read into that, but, yeah. Were you going to say something, Sam? Uh, I think it's interesting that Mark goes through the trouble of identifying her as, um, as a, as a he, he described her twice. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, mm -hmm. and it, it, he goes through a lot of trouble to, to make the point of like, okay, this woman was a Gentile. Yes. She's a Syrophoenician woman. And yep. with Mark's brevity, it seems kind of odd detail to add if it wasn't going to play into the story mm -hmm. in any way, shape, or form. Because if it was just a situation where Jesus is like, hey, I'm with the disciples right now, it probably wouldn't have mattered very much. But given that she was like an actual, a, a historical enemy of the Jews yep. and a despised member it kind of tracks a little better if you're going to interpret it that way. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely a, an important detail that she was of Gentile race, not just Gentile, but Syrophoenician or, or Canaanite, as Matthew says. That is absolutely vital to our understanding of the text and what's going on. And that's why I spent more time than I probably otherwise would have going through the, the maps in the region that Jesus is up in this Gentile region. It's really important that she is a Gentile woman. That's vital to our understanding of the text. All right, well, let's look at the woman's rebuttal. 
we've seen the woman's request, we've seen Jesus' response. Now the woman's rebuttal in verse 28 says, but she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So her response displays a a recognition of her position, realizing that she is outside of Israel. She's not part of that that promised uh, national blessing, that she is, in fact, a a Gentile. But also we see a a plea for grace that, yes, I'm I'm not a child, but even the dogs, they they get some of the crumbs. So we see some uh, desire for for grace from her. And uh, she again, already identified Jesus as the son of David. So she has some historical knowledge of her Old Testament. And so she likely knew of Gentiles who were welcomed into the fold in the Old Testament. Gentiles like Jethro or Rahab or Ruth or Naaman or all of Nineveh. These were uh, individuals and nations that were outside of Israel, outside of the the Hebrew race that were welcomed in and accepted in and uh, grafted into God's promise that he made with the Jewish people. And then we also see that uh, her continued pleas are a demonstration of her faith, that she's continually coming back to Jesus. She's not just like, okay, well, I I tried you. I'm going to go and try this witch doctor over here. I'm going to go and try the the doctor up the street or uh, some other idol. No, she's continually pleading with Jesus. So I think that she has a legitimate faith in the Messiah, the son of David, who she calls Lord. Um, We also see that um, she's not offended by the fact that he says, no, I'm I'm here for Israel. I'm not here for uh, the the Gentiles. Not offended by his use of the term dogs. Rather, she was um, not even greedy, but she considered the crumbs from the master's table to be sufficient. She, she doesn't want the whole package. She just says, yeah, I, I just want a little bit. I just, Jesus, I, I need you. I have my daughter. She's hurting. She's broken. She's demon-possessed. Just please help her. Uh, she, again, came humbly, bowing down before Christ, repeatedly asking. I think she has a very uh, soft affect, and she's humble and uh, just reaching out for grace, right? Not something that she sees as being owed to her, not something that she deserves. And then in verse, verses 29 through 30, we can see uh, how Jesus responds to her is compassionate healing. It says in verse 29 that he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter and going back to her home, she found the child lying in the bed, the demon having left. So here again, Jesus cites her, her faith-filled reply as the reason for his compassionate healing that he healed her because of the the way that she approached him, because she has faith in him. Um, He's not just some kind of humanitarian healing people left and right, even though it might appear that way to to onlookers. Again, John chapter 6, Jesus says, oh, you're just here because you want bread. You just want a free meal. No, Jesus is there because he is pointing to something larger. These signs and wonders that he is doing, the sign is pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. And the wonder is the response that he gets from the people when they realize that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of David. We should also notice here that Jesus heals the girl from afar, right? He doesn't have to be right there over her. He doesn't have to, to touch her. He doesn't have to 
rub some kind of ointment on her or anything. Uh, he heals her from afar. And I put on there Matthew chapter 8. He does the same thing with the, the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, if you recall that story, where the centurion shows up and says, well, I have faith that you can heal even from here. Just, just say the word and I trust that it will be done. It's interesting, the Roman centurion was also a, a Gentile, right? He was outside of the fold of Israel, and Jesus healed both these people from afar, just saying, it's done, go. And she went, and she found her daughter healed, and it was, uh, she verified that what Jesus said came to fruition, it came to pass. You think her statement was by just asking for crumbs, declaring the greatness yeah. of Jesus, the magnitude Maybe even recognize the deity because you're saying, you know, yeah, the, the crumbs are sufficient. Yeah, we saw that same kind of response from the, the woman with the, the flow of blood, right? The hemorrhaging woman. If I can just touch the fringe of his cloak, that'll be enough. That's sufficient. Just realizing the, the omnipotence of Christ. You are so powerful. Just a crumb will do. Just a a touch of the fringe of your garment, that'll suffice. Good. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on? All right. We won't spend quite as much time on this next section, but let's read. Actually, could I get one of you guys to read Mark 7, 31 through 37? Who's got that for us? Mark 7, 31 through 37. I'll read it. Thanks, Jim. Again departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis up to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought him to one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephah. Ephatha, that is, be over. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. All right, thank you. All right, so uh, this section here is actually unique to Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark is the, the shortest of the gospel, so there aren't many things that are only in Mark's gospel that we don't find in uh, the other synoptics, Matthew, Luke, and most likely not John, because remember, John is unique. He has the most unique gospel out of all of them. So again, going back to the, the harmony of the gospels, we can see that only Matthew and Mark are covering the surrounding sections, but right here is a big blank space in Matthew. So Mark is the only one who covers that, that whole section. Just another plug for that kind of book going through the, the different parallel passages. Um, and so we see that in verse 31, that Jesus is now on the move again. Again, it says, again, he went from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. So let's pull up our map again. And I will get my laser pointer out. All right, so Jesus went from the Sea of Galilee again, so Capernaum, 
40 miles out of the way to go up to Tyre, to this Gentile region. And now he's getting ready to leave. But he, it says, he went through Sidon to go to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is back down here in the south. And Sidon's up here 20 miles to the north. So he's not making the, he's not taking a direct path. He's going out of the way to go up to, through Sidon. He's going to come over, go east, down through uh, Caesarea Philippi, then down here to uh, south of the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis region. So he's going out of the way. And that whole area, by the way, is all also Gentile occupied area. Those are Gentile cities that he's traveling through Tyre and, and Sidon. And then Decapolis, that's what we looked at back in chapter 5 where Jesus went and he cast the demons out of the man who was possessed by the legion of demons. And remember that when Jesus did that with the, the man possessed by legion, that man wanted to follow after Jesus. He said, just let me come with you. I just want to be with you. He had this, like, this last Sire Phoenician woman, he had this understanding. You are the Messiah. I, I need to go with you. I need to be with you. Again, we're kind of seeing how Israel is not receiving Christ, and these Gentiles are starting to embrace Christ and see who he is. Um, the section that Jerry covered for us back at the beginning of chapter 6, right, talking about how even in Nazareth, people said, oh, he's just the, the son of a carpenter. We know his brothers. We know his sister. We know his mother. He's nobody special. And says that uh, a prophet is not without honor except for in his hometown. Nazareth rejected him. And so uh, now Jesus is strictly in these Gentile areas, traveling back to Caesarea Philippi, where he uh, unleashed this man as a missionary. Jesus said, no, you're not going to come with me. You're going to stay here. You're going to go throughout the Decapolis. You're going to tell people out who I am. And we'll see that people know who he is, likely as a result of this man's ministry in the Decapolis. And so um, we can assume a, a couple of reasons for Jesus taking this circuitous route around. Uh, one, it gave him more time with his disciples, right? Remember, he was looking for a retreat. He wanted to pour into his disciples. He wanted to teach them. He knew that he was going to be leaving them soon, so he was prepping them for ministry on their own. And then secondly, uh, he is likely avoiding the Pharisees and avoiding these crowds who have been pretty hostile towards him in the past. And so through, by going through Sidon and down into the Decapolis, I think he would accomplish both of these things. And so um, we see that Jesus travels both through and to Gentile cities in this section here. And... Um, did you notice that when he got to this region, he was encountered by this deaf man who spoke with difficulty. He had this speech impediment. You imagine if you can't hear, likely for your whole life, you're going to have a difficult time speaking. We know that even today. And they, um, that is probably his, his friends, his family, those who cared about him, implored him to lay his hands on him. And then notice here in verse 33 that Jesus takes him aside. It says, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. And just imagine this man who has been so isolated from the world for all of his life, unable to really interact and um, have just normal communication with people. Now Jesus is, is taking him and showing him this special attention, this one-on-one -on -one attention. Jesus is uh, really showing his compassion towards this man. He is being loving and gracious, giving him this one-on-one -on -one time with this man. When Jesus has these crowds of, as we mentioned, 
25,000 likely following him and asking for bread and food and Jesus is taking special time to spend with this man. And um, it's just a, a precious glimpse into how loving and gracious Jesus is. Again, the suffering servant, as Mark continually reminds us, this is who Jesus is. He's the suffering servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And uh, one thing that we have to mention, this is kind of a, an odd way that he heals him, isn't it? It says that he took his fingers and put them into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with saliva, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said, Epitha, that is, be open. That's a little different, a little awkward, right? But uh, we do have to remember that there is no consistent pattern or formula that we see in Jesus' miraculous healings. He doesn't heal the same person in the same way all the time. Um, oftentimes, we see Jesus just speaking a word and the person is healed, like we just saw with the Syrophoenician woman, right? Or like we saw in chapter 1 when Jesus rebuked the, the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. It, he just spoke and it happened, just with a word. Uh, oftentimes he does it with uh, touching. He, he touches a person like he did with the, uh, the leprous man, again, back in chapter 1, showing his great compassion. He wasn't concerned about the man's leprosy. In fact, he went the extra step saying, I'm going to touch you. Um, and the man became clean rather than Jesus becoming unclean. Uh, we saw, again, with the, the woman in chapter 5, she touched him, the fringe of his cloak. And she didn't cause that power to draw out of him. He willingly allowed that power to be uh, sent out of him so that she could be healed. Uh, in John chapter 9, the, the man who was born blind, Jesus places clay on his eyes to, to heal him. That's a little bit different. And shortly we'll get here in, in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus uses spit to, to heal a blind man. So all different kinds of ways, some kind of rather weird ways that Jesus heals people. Um, we shouldn't expect it to always be consistent. There's not a, a steady pattern that we can see in the way that Jesus heals people. And um, I wanted to share with you this quote from John MacArthur. It's a little uh, maybe interpretive. It's, it's trying to seek for an understanding of why Jesus did it this way. And I think it's a, a good understanding, but it's not, um, I wouldn't teach it dogmatically. But here's what John MacArthur says. He says, in an act of profound kindness, the Lord began to communicate in sign language using gestures and nonverbal signals to this man who can't hear, right? He says Jesus uses four specific signs to make his point. First, he put his fingers into both of his ears to indicate that he recognized this man's physical problem. Jesus understood that he was not stunted mentally or possessed by demons, as some may have thought. He simply could not hear. That was a, a common understanding of, uh, of the day, that people who are deaf, they're just, they're dumb, right? They, not, not dumb like they can't speak. They are unintelligent. They have this mental break where uh, they, they don't get it. So Jesus didn't point to his head. He pointed to his ears because that was his impediment. Uh, and second, he says, after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Jesus, again, employed a physical gesture to identify the man's speech disability, not a mental disability. Third, looking up to heaven, Jesus demonstrated that the creative power he exercised came from God. And fourth, by giving a deep sigh, the Lord communicated a sincere sympathy for the long agonies of this man's disability, an honest, groaning, visible 
projected, visibly projected pain and heartache on the man's behalf. So, again, we, we don't know if that's why Jesus healed in that way, but it seems to make sense to me that he's using these visible gestures to show this man what he's healing, how he's doing it, by doing it from the power of God, and that he's doing it with compassion, a, a deep sigh. He has compassion for this man, again, who he took aside one-on-one to really demonstrate that he was a, a suffering servant. And then... Um, Notice that when this man was healed, um, verse 35, his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly, which is amazing. That is a miracle in and of itself, that this man had no need to be taught how to speak. Uh, this is a typically very laborious process, right? We, we start with our kids very young and it takes several years for them to learn how to uh, to speak and properly communicate, to understand others. This man's likely hearing these languages for the first time and he's understanding them. He knows what people are saying to him and he's able to, to speak coherently. Um, and I wish I could do that with a, a second language, right? If I could speak Spanish, um, that would be amazing. Just like, boom. But that's not how it works, right? It takes a lot of time and uh, practice and he didn't go through any kind of speech therapy or anything. This is a, a miracle on par with what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the, the Holy Spirit descends as a, a dove on these people. This is miraculous in and of itself that um, he is able to communicate immediately. And then we see uh, in verse 36 that he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all these things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So imagine this man who moments before, he couldn't say anything. He was unable to speak. He was unable, unable to hear. Now he has the ability to speak, and Jesus tells him not to. And he's, for, for the rest of life, his life, he's going to be, he's going to have this amazing, great story to tell. This story that people are going to be constantly asking him to tell. They're going to say, how did this happen? And he's not going to be able to, to say anything. But um, we see that he didn't follow those orders from Christ, right? He, um, he went on. He was proclaiming what Jesus had told him not to proclaim. Um, again, I, that would be difficult when people are just continually asking you, how is this possible? What happened? And to not be able to say something, that's uh, a tall order. But it's an order from the Lord that he should have obeyed, which he didn't. Um, and uh, it says that they were astonished. They were perplexed. And they went out proclaiming this anyway, that he has done all these things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Uh, this is evidence that he is the Messiah. This is evidence that he is God, that this is uh, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, that he will make even the deaf to uh, to hear and mute to speak. So, that is all of Mark 7. We have a, a minute or two for any thoughts or questions. Those are some great things. Yes, Christina. Um, my question is, it seems like when Jesus tells people after, after he heals them miraculously, you hear it, him say it throughout the Gospels where he's telling them, don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And you also hear him tell the demons when the demons come right out and say, we yeah. know who you are. 
and he tells them to shut up. Yeah. Why is it that he doesn't want to just be straight forthcoming, know that I am the son of God, know who I am, but instead he makes the demons be silent with that proclamation. Yeah. And Big he question. tells the people that he heals, don't tell anybody I did this for you. Yeah. And I wonder it, why that is. Except for the man in, in chapter 5, he was kind of an anomaly where he said, no, you're not going to come with me and say you're going to go out and you're going to tell. I think the reason that he did that um, was so that the people in this Decapolis region, they could know and hear about him and they could be ready so that when he came, they were already bringing people to him. They, they knew who he was because of that man's ministry. But as you mentioned, that was an anomaly. He's telling everybody else, including demons, don't say anything. You guys keep your mouth shut. And I think that's because his hour had not yet come because his, his time was not there. Again, going back to John 6, we see that after the feeding of the 5,000, people wanted to raise him up. They wanted to make him king. They said, here, come on in. You are the Messiah. You're the king. Take your kingdom. Uh, take Rome and uh, kick them out of here. We want you to, to reign here and now. That wasn't Jesus' plan. That wasn't what he wanted to do. Uh, his hour had not yet come to, to be taken to the cross. Even all the way back in uh, chapter 3, the Pharisees and the, the Herodians, they were seeking how they might destroy him. They wanted to take and kill him. That was at the very beginning of his ministry, or towards the beginning of his ministry. But it wasn't time for him to go to the cross just then. And so he is um, waiting for, it's, it's all an issue of timing. He needs uh, the, the proper timing to take place. Yes. Yeah. And our instruction now is to go in town. Yep. Yeah, now we're, we're told that's our mission. We are ambassadors of Christ. We've been given this, this ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the, the fallen world to a, a holy God. And we're, we're told that, yes, we, we have to proclaim that truth. That is what it means to be a Christian, right? The, the great mission to go into all the world and to proclaim. Good. Jesus wanted to keep some people in the dark, namely the Sanhedrin. Yep. And that's the purpose of the. If they ever convinced them, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have crucified him. Yeah. So he had no. Yeah. That's why he was speaking in in parables. Uh, that's a an interesting verse back in, uh, chapter four, verse twelve. He said that he was speaking in parables so that while seeing they may not see, or they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Jesus didn't want them to return and be forgiven which is a hard teaching for us to understand, but Jesus' ways are, are perfect. He has some that are his that he draws to himself. All that he draws to himself will come, but he has others that he intentionally does not want to return and be forgiven. So we are past our time. I'll go ahead and close and we'll fellowship. God, we thank you for your ways. Thank you for your truth that, uh, that you know all things, that your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Again, we would ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would teach us, and that you would be pleased with our, our attitudes. We would have attitudes of worship towards you. Amen.